From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Marketing Matters on Business Radio. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Marketing Matters here on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm Barbara Kahn, the Patty and J.H. Baker Professor of Marketing. And my co-host, Americus Reed, has parenting duties to attend to today, so I am alone. Um, today is our Mother's Day special. Sunday is Mother's Day. I'm very excited to see what my kids are going to bring for me. Who knows? Um, hopefully you have good expectations for what's going to happen to you if you celebrate that day. Um, we have as an expert here on our show, Eleanor Hawkins, who's a communication strategist and a writer at Axios. And she's written a couple stories about what marketers are doing with regard to Mother's Day specials. And she also has written stories about the other event that happened last weekend, which is the coronation. So I'd like to speak to her about both of these. Hello, Eleanor, and welcome to the show. Hi, Barbara. Thank you for having me. So before we get into Mother's Day, because that's happening in a few days, let's talk a little bit about the coronation. And I noticed that you wrote some interesting articles with regard to that recently. Um, one of them had to do with how the British monarchy communicates things through style. Do you want to talk a little bit about what you wrote there? Sure. So an interesting fact about Queen Elizabeth was that throughout her entire reign, she only gave one sit-down television interview. But she certainly found a way to get her point across and communicate and portray messaging. And it was really through her clothing. Everything was um, everything was, was to a T. There was always a purpose behind what she was wearing, whether it was the color, whether it was the neckline. Um, she was known for most, most recently, I would say in about 2017, it was said that she wore a hat that modeled the, um, European, European Union flag after the Brexit debacle. So it was a way of her to keep her political neutrality while also conveying a message. But she's not alone. Many of the women in the royal family have, have used their clothing as a way to, convey some sort of message. Obviously, Princess Diana was very well known for her revenge dress. Um, But she also made a statement later on in life when she visited hospitals and wore very dressed down clothing and touched um, aid workers with her bare hands and kind of destigmatized that disease. So all eyes are on these worlds, and they very much know it, and they use their clothing as a way to communicate. So let me ask you about that, because that's pretty interesting. Obviously, all eyes this time were on Kate and Camilla, and maybe, to a lesser extent, Megan, given she wasn't even there, but seems like eyes are always on her anyway. Um, so Kate, as far as I can tell, is impeccable and very visually oriented. She's supposedly a photographer, but she's not allowed to be a professional photographer. But she cares a lot about color-coding her kids in all the pictures that we ever see of them. So what did her clothing – can you comment on what her clothing signified uh, this time in the coronation? I mean, I'm biased, but I think Kate really – Stole the day. She looked impeccable. I love that she and her daughter were matching, and that's common for her and her family. They typically, as you mentioned, wear the same shade of coloring and make it look a little coordinated. Kate is also known for being accessible in her style. Um, she's also known for flag dressing, which means wearing the colors of, of the flag of the country that you're visiting. She does it a lot on diplomatic visits, but she also does it a lot when she's at home in the U.K., 
um, of all of the 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 data that we gathered, we found that she was the one who wore blue, red, and white the most. Um, so, but 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 another piece of that, as I mentioned, is the accessibility factor, and she really is known for driving high street fashion style. If she wears something that is accessible, it flies off the shelves. Yeah. Uh, there are several iconic maternity dresses that that went viral because she wore them. Lip gloss. So um, she's also known for influencing fashion trends. Yeah. So what about Camilla? I mean, Camilla, boy, what a role she had to play here. Now she's not the queen consort. She's actually the queen. I think she wore, uh, I read that she wore a dress or something that had to do with Diana in some way, maybe the same designer or something like that. I can't speak to that. But what I can tell you is that in our research, we found that Camilla, out of all of the royals, really relies on her clothing as camouflage. She wears the most muted tones. She wears a lot of dark colors, which for a long time was considered to be taboo. I mean, there's a famous a famous incident that happened between Prince Charles and Princess Diana where she came out in a black evening dress and he said, black is reserved for funerals. Um, and she, she went to change. And it's also in stark contrast to what we saw from Diana, who was very fashion forward, bold colors, very stylish, always up on the trends, whereas Camilla is definitely more classic, more camouflage in her appearance. Um, and I think we'll continue to see more of that in her new role as queen. So that's pretty interesting on what was happening in Britain. I saw that you also wrote an interesting article about uh, speaking to Christine Schmierer, I guess that's her name, who's the senior advisor at Archwell, which of course is Megan and Harry's, um, what's it, a foundation or organization. Um, what were some of your conclusions about talking to her about that strategy? She, Christine's fascinating. She's a really smart, strategic communications practitioner. And from what she's told me, her focus is on the business and tech aspect of um, Archwell's endeavors. So she's, she's out there helping um, the Duke and Duchess become more involved in their mental health. Um, and I believe he's on some, he's the chief impact officer of of better up or some sort of mental health app. So a lot of what she's doing is, is helping them kind of evolve into the business and tech space and get comfortable there. Um, she herself has a tech background. The Duke and Duchess are not the first public facing folks that she has worked for. She, she ran executive communications for Steve Jobs at Apple. So she has a lot of really interesting experience. And that's something that I do quite a bit with my communications newsletter is I find interesting communicators who have, you know, unique experience, but also unique backgrounds and try to pull some insights from them. Because one thing I've found in the year that I've been writing this newsletter is that there is no one direct path into marketing and communications. Um, we all get here in our own way. And I thought her story was, was very interesting and, and super timely considering the coronation. Yeah, well, that's pretty interesting. Let me reintroduce you. We're talking to Eleanor Hawkins, who's a communication strategist, as she mentioned. And she's also a writer at Axios. And she looks a lot at how dress, how style, how all these things communicate subtly or maybe more explicitly different kinds of things than you might not think at the top 
you know, just by looking at it. But clearly, we've known for a long time, as you mentioned, that the style and the dress that the royals wear has almost a disproportionate effect on sales and things like that. To me, it's a little bit shocking, the attention that royalty still commands. Um, and of course, here in the United States, Meghan and Harry, they're not even royalty anymore in a way. And they're like, at least in my inbox, they're, uh, I get news alerts about them almost every single day, even if they were not really front and center at the royal events. Are you surprised at all that the royalty or uh, still commands this much attention? No, and and this is this is common practice. I mean, Kate and 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 Megan aren't the first ones to influence fashion culture. They're just the first ones to make it accessible in this digital delivered to your door era. Um, there will, I, I believe, it was Queen. I believe it was Queen Charlotte who normalized um, wearing white on your wedding day. So, so hmm. they've always had an influence in fashion and in history. But now the difference is social media bloggers and accessible brands that people can immediately find and replicate. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, they're very intentional with what they wear. And you'll, you'll often see that Kate is supporting local UK brands for that reason. She knows that it'll give back to the local economy. Um, but it's, it's a, it's a new era, I would say for the Royals and for their accessibility and influence, especially across social media. Yeah, that's kind of interesting giving back to the community because like below the surface or maybe above the surface, I don't know how you were looking at it, during the coronation, there were also some political arguments, you know, as to whether or not you know, the whole monarchy is outdated and, you know, Charles is obvious, and William, for that matter, are both billionaires, and yet there are people who have financial issues in the UK. So why are we still supporting that kind of event? Uh, and what you're suggesting is they do play a role with their visibility to help give back to the economy, so that maybe it isn't quite as one-sided as some people seem to indicate. Do you have an opinion on that? I don't. I think. I think whether it's the Royals or whether it's just your traditional celebrities, there's always going to be some sort of fascination with what they're doing. Um, and so, so I'm, I'm not surprised by all of the kind of pomp and circumstance that we've seen. And I'll just say that the feedback I, I received from, from my readers about this story, um, I mean, typically I'm covering a lot of doom and gloom and comms layoff news and, you know, marketing campaigns gone awry and ESG and all the things. So, my readers were really happy to um, to take a breather and have a palate cleanser by reading about the royals and their fashion choices. I got to say, I'm on that camp, too. I really enjoyed it, too. It was really fun. I woke up and watched the coronation, and, you know, it was pretty interesting watching the children. Did you, by the way, speaking, you mentioned Kate's daughter. Um, did you have anything else to say about the kids and how uh, Charlotte handled herself and Lewis needed a timeout, you know? And did you notice anything about that? You know, one thing about these modern royals is I've mentioned how accessible they seem, but I'm a mother of a three-year-old, and so it was incredibly relatable to see um, Prince Louis kind of goofing off and acting. <laughs> I would imagine that my son would be doing the exact same thing. And to that end, around the kids, their their clothes go viral as well. I, um, Meghan Markle famously dressed her son in H&M, and, you know, that item immediately. So... So the kids themselves are also setting trends. And, um, you know, the, the more that that we see them out as a family, the more, I think, accessible they're, they're trying to 
appear to be. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. But talking about the kids brings us to the other topic of the day, which is coming up this Sunday is Mother's Day. And a lot of brands try to capitalize on Mother's Day to get us to spend more money. So I think you wrote a story about what brands are trying to do with regard to that flood of Mother's Day marketing emails. Um, what, what did you find with that? Yeah, it's not a totally new trend, but it's definitely one that's picking up steam. And it's that more and more brands are now offering a way to opt out of Mother's Day marketing emails. So a couple of weeks before Mother's Day, they'll send a quick note and say, look, if you don't want to see this, if if it's difficult for you, if this day is hard, we don't want to you know, rub salt in any wounds. So here's an, here's an option to uh, to opt out. And it's, it's it's mainly brands that you would you would think of because they target female um, consumers. So it's brands like Levi's and K Jewelers. Etsy has been doing this for a long time. Canva as well. Um, but it, it really it really is viewed by the marketers that I talk to as a um, empathetic way to connect with your consumers on this cultural hallmark day. Um, without also striking a nerve. So, you know, you're talking about people withdrawing their marketing communications about Mother's Day. Have you also noticed anything about something that's been particularly effective in terms of Mother's Day marketing? Um, I think this has been incredibly effective because it's, it's a way to, to if, if your employee or if your consumer rather doesn't opt out, you now have, have more information on them as well. So, again, it's a way to to touch base and to gather even more information on the consumers and while also respecting their needs. Um, it also builds great association for the brand. I have not seen much pushback um, around these Mother's Day opt-out marketing emails. And I'll also say that, that we're seeing this become more common across all Hallmark holidays, Father's Day as well. There's not as much because I, I don't think that uh, – that the mothers need as much reminding as the fathers do that the day is coming up. <laughs> but, um, but you are you are seeing it there. You're also seeing, um, you know, religious holidays. There there are more and more opportunities to opt out of that as well. So so there might be a, a pivot happening where it's more important to collect information and to appear empathetic to your consumer as opposed to just cashing in on a few quick flash sales. Oh, it's all about building that association and that name ID and the reputation of the company itself. That seems to me to be a good um, direction for brands to take, and that would have a good delivery. I think that kind of makes sense. You know, be mindful of your audience and do provide value instead of nuisance. That seems like a... You know, speaking of value and nuisance, I saw you also wrote an article about one of the big stories that grabbed headlines in the last few weeks, which is Bud Light. You want to tell us uh, some of your feelings about the Bud Light story? The Bud Light story was interesting because um, it was just a traditional influencer marketing campaign that, you know, those of us in communications and marketing are very, very used to seeing. Um, The campaign itself bubbled up in small pockets of the Internet. Um, And then... It, it really blew up after Anheuser-Busch's CEO put out a statement that was pretty lukewarm and didn't say much of anything, which angered both sides of, of this, you know, of this controversy. So um, 
that it was an interesting case study and just understanding and knowing your audience um, and also, you know, making sure that your traditional what seem to be common marketing campaigns don't go against any sort of larger business strategy. And if you are going to go for it, the entire company and leadership needs to be all in. Another point, um, there were some reports that Bud Light sales plummeted after this marketing debacle. Um, but I think the between the lines there is that this is coming off of March Madness. This is coming off of a really big season of, of drinking and, and especially beer consumers in the sporting world. So we don't exactly know the full impact that it has had. I've also seen um, members of the LGBTQ plus community really rally around the brand in response. Um, but it's, it's, it's kind of a, a snapshot into the, the tense culture wars that we're seeing um, because at the end of the day, it's just beer, right? Yeah. Beer. I mean, that's kind of what the CEO said. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, I do think there's takeaways here. A couple things just to un- unpack a few things you said. One of them is even though you might see these uh, declines in sales, it's very hard to parse out exactly what they're due to. And people shouldn't overgeneralize or overpredict, you know, something on the data because it's more complicated than it looks. That's number one. Number two, even when you do see some short-term um, responses to some of this negative publicity, they're frequently not long-lasting. Um, and so there's a difference between a short-term and a long-term effect. So I think that's one thing, caveats and caution in interpreting the data, which I totally agree with your point on that. I just wanted to amplify it. The other thing that I think you're saying, which I think is also true, is when brands start to you know venture in some of these political causes, you got to be careful. What you can't do is go halfway. And in some right. sense, that's kind of what they did. You know, they made a little statement, and then when they got pushed on it, they refused to take a position one way or another. You should never find yourself in that situation, I think. You know, if you know you're going into an area where there's a lot of diversions of opinion, you got to be careful because people are going to ask you to take a side, one side or another. That's just what's going to happen. Do you agree with that? I, I do. But I will also point out that this is not the first time that the Bud Light has has taken a stance on um, LGBTQ plus issues. They they rolled out um, specialized rainbow beer bottles around gay pride. I think that was in 2019. They also have continually received perfect scores from um, the Human Rights Campaign Corporate Index. So it's it's interesting that this was really the issue that was a tipping point because it is rather consistent with all of their... Yeah, but paying attention to the political landscape, one could have predicted it because the Republican Party decided to double down on the transgender issue in particular, partly because, as you're saying, some of those other issues are kind of popularly accepted. And the one that they thought they could bank on was this one, which was more polarized. So I think that's what's a little bit different between these and the past things that you were talking about. And it's fine for Bud Light to take a position on that if they want to. But if they're not willing to come down on one side or another, it seems crazy to open the conversation and then step back from taking a point of view. Yeah, I would say that a lot of the marketers and communication professionals that I speak with are are paying attention and hopefully learning from the missteps that happened in the response 
to um, the Bud Light marketing campaign. Yeah. Well, Eleanor, thank you so much for joining us today and bringing us your insight on communication strategies. And you mentioned you had a newsletter. Where can our listeners go to keep up with you and what you write about? Yes, thank you. I write Axios Communicators newsletter. It comes out every Thursday, and you can sign up on axios.com. Okay, thank you very much for being on our show. Well, that's all we have time for today. I'd like to thank our producers, Dion Simpkins and Dana Cash. We're here every Wednesday from 5 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time, and we replay our show several times throughout the week. You can follow us on Twitter at SXM Marketing, and you can follow Business Radio at SXM Business for information about all our programming. Thank you all for listening today. We'll be back next week, and America's Read will be back next week. Till then, this has been Marketing Matters. I'm I'm Barbara Kahn here at Business Radio, Sirius XM 132.